All right. Good evening, everyone, and welcome back to episode 37 of Maucast. So tonight, um, you know, it's been a, it's we like I said, uh, like we said on Friday, we weren't here last night. Um, that was specifically so we could have Cole on. Cole, we're very happy to see you tonight. Um, we're going to be wrapping up kind of an interesting day in the news with a uh, not-so-white topic. Um, we're going to be talking about the death of meritocracy in America. But before we get into that, I uh, want to say, if you guys like the show, please like, share, subscribe, do all that, especially share. Um, it's super helpful to get us out there because, you know, we don't have a marketing budget. So that's my fiance in the background. If you have anyone you, you know might like the show, please uh, please share it with them. So, oh, also, leave your chats, uh, chats, comments, concerns in the chat, and uh, any questions, we'll go through them as well. So, tonight, we have Jessica Redman back on, and Cole Carty. Cole, say hi to everybody. Hello, everyone. James, thanks for having me back on. Of course. I wasn't here the last time that you were on. I believe that I was in St. Louis, I think. One of the major cities of this beautiful nation. <laughs> oh, of course. Of course. St. Louis is a very interesting city. It's very flat, by the way. Besides like, the arch. Yes. Well, I mean, that's not as tall as I thought it would be because this is the first time I've ever been to St. Louis. And, you know, St. Louis is kind of like the Quad Cities scaled up 50 times. You know, there's like 14 big buildings and then flatness. So it's, it's a very interesting city to be in. Very, very good food. I will say that. You never so, went to Midwest, James? No, no. Uh, Midwest model you went for you guys wondering in the chat. Uh, <laughs> yeah, no. I only went to American model you went in Chicago. Gotcha. Twice. All right. So um, let's, hop it, let's hop into it. So basically the premise that we're going to talk about tonight is the culture of the United States has been changing over the last... 10 plus years, really since Occupy Wall Street, where we've moved away, and this is my opinion, and you guys can check me on this if you want. Um, we've moved away from the idea of meritocracy. Meritocracy being that you earn a title, a position, um, you are the winner because you have put in the hard work, you have the knowledge, the skills, what have you, to earn that title or position. Um, we've gotten away from that in, in so much that we now focus on not who you are as a person, not what you know, but what you are. Um, uh, dare I say what, what victim group you are a part of? Have you guys noticed this in, in your fields at all? I've, I've certainly seen it, um, not so much in the companies that I've been in, but in accounting in general. Yeah, well, I mean, the, the biggest example I can think of is pretty recent with journalism, but even just, um, I don't remember who it was, but some governor or something that said that she would only talk to black journalists. Um, uh, very that, Yeah, and then even then, as... A journalist there's just certain things that you can and can't put in your articles based on you know your color or your status um like we're always taught that 
you can include the color of a person if it's relevant to the article. So, like, if it's something groundbreaking within the article that you obviously need to include it, otherwise you tend to leave it out. Um, but I feel like even nowadays, even if it's vital to the article, that if you're a white journalist, that you shouldn't put that in the article because it could be considered discrimination. And so it's a lot of just kind of watching your step and watching your word um, with journalism. It, at least those are the main examples that come to my head. Yeah, James, I can echo what you kind of said about accounting. And I don't really, I don't really see it too much, especially because accounting is kind of like there's always kind of a right and wrong answer to it. Yeah. That at the end of the day, like your debits have to equal your credits. And so it's kind of like, it kind of meddles out. Like you can't just get a job just because of characteristics of yourself. It's kind of has to come to your merit. And so I think that kind of protects from the, that's the death of meritocracy, I guess, that you still have to earn the job in the accounting world and a few other like the STEM fields and the more like, I guess, knowledge based areas that are kind of more protected just because you have to have that knowledge base in order to get those positions. And not even just with jobs too, like I remember when I was looking at colleges and of course I was looking to apply to a bunch of scholarships. It's like, there's all these scholarships for different races or for people who, um, you know, whose families make below a certain amount of income, regardless of whether your family's putting three kids to college or whatever, um, or whether you've had these certain life experiences that qualify for you for all this free money basically. Um, and so I found that I was very limited as a white middle-class um, girl looking to go into college that I didn't actually have that many scholarships to apply for besides the actual, I mean, there were a couple academic and things that I did have to work for, but I didn't have anything like, hey, because you're, you know, Native American, you can apply for this scholarship just because you're Native American. Mine were like, if you have a good GPA and you do all this community service, you can apply for this scholarship and maybe you'll earn it. You know. Yeah, and I think that gets into... We're going to move Boomer real quick. Come here. Okay. That gets into, um, you know, this, this debate's decades old, but uh, affirmative action. So the idea that we need to do something to level the playing field, which, and I would like to, I would like to get your guys' thoughts on this because I personally agree it's just how do you go about it without without disenfranchising those people who work hard. Um, I believe personally in meritocracy above all else. But if if I can achieve a certain GPA, for example, but in college, but I had the advantage <laughs> of going to a public school system that was better funded and had some college programs and I was able to explore more opportunities and had more support behind me that could tip the scales in my favor. So uh, how do you, how do you balance basically the need to catch, catch people up because of things like Jim Crow laws in the past and not discriminating against people who work hard in the present day it you know Ibram X Kennedy um he's you know they quote him all the time uh saying that the only cure to past discrimination is current discrimination and the only cure to current discrimination is future discrimination but that just starts a cycle so how do you how do you get out of that cycle how do you catch people up while also not tearing other people down I, do you guys have any thoughts on that It's an um, easy questions tonight. <laughs> I guess my, my like initial thought is that 
it's on the accountability of like the employer or whoever's or you know the college the person who's admitting people into college or whatever it's on them to kind of look at that person's resume because usually your resume kind of has like a hometown it has what your high school gpa was it has your ranking and so you can see how many students were in the class and all that kind of thing i think it's on them to really kind of take account into account all of that different background information and then compare it against itself first so you know consider so say that i was ranked number one in a class of 50 students in high school um but then they look at another applicant who was number one in a class of 3,000. like obviously there's a big difference in that and there's a difference in achievement um potentially i mean obviously you have to take into account all the other factors on the resume but really i don't think that they always look at all of that background information and they don't look at percentiles in that region or anything intent instead they just tend to take the easy route skim it because i mean they are looking over a lot all at once mm -hmm. but they tend to skim it look for the key words the key numbers and then they take it at face value rather than digging into it yeah and you you bring up a good point that i and it is difficult because let's like, say you're applying for a job or for a university you know, Harvard, in, in an article we're going to get to in a little bit, Harvard mentions that they get 40,000 applications a year and they need to whittle it down to 2,000. How do you how do you do that? So I think the issue isn't so much, you know, digging into each individual resume because, you know, for example, at my job, we were just hiring, we were, we were looking to hire some more accountants and we got dozens of resumes in. You can't interview dozens of people. You have to find a way to, to whittle it down. And um, so you have to have some sort of objective criteria. I think the issue that we're running into is that the objective criteria isn't based on merit anymore. Um, and yes, there you know you have to look at the difference between, like you said, if you're first in the class of fifty versus first in the class of one of three thousand, there's a big difference there. But Either way, looking at people who are first in their class is an objective uh, merit-based system um, as opposed to saying, okay, we, we need X percentage of the people that we hire to be of a certain category. Um, yeah, what do you think, Cole? Yeah, I, I know that kind of getting back to like the whole like, education thing and I can circle on back to I guess hiring practices. I guess um, I guess we come from like a suburb outside of Chicago. Like the different, like the stark difference between like a suburb like public school system versus like a city of Chicago public school system. With like a kid will come out of there, like the retention rate and the test scores, like it's pretty stark contrast with what you see like in the surrounding suburbs. And so that's mm -hmm. really something that like yeah, those kids that come out of the Chicago public school system, like if they do graduate, and that's it's. They don't prep them too well for college, and that's something that another firm of action it tries to correct, but also it could lead them to disadvantage them if they're getting into schools that they're just not ready for. And that's nothing against them; it's just they just weren't prepared ready, like no, not enough college prep, and they just can't really handle the college classes right now. I guess like for hiring practicing back to the original point, um, I think it's pretty interesting to take a look at. Like I understand where yeah you want you don't just want like a team like diverse teams do have a lot of 
good benefits to it. I think it's more the diversity of thought rather than just diversity of persons that like, I think that us three come from three different areas of the country. We bring a lot of different perspectives. That's diversity of thought, not diversity of like skin color or any of the, the other like traits that people really look for now in like hiring practices. Yeah, it's it's superficial as opposed to, you know, actual true diversity of thought. And I think it's a very, very good point, Cole. Um, and you also bring up a good point about, you know, the, the schools themselves. And so I've done a lot of, I did a lot of research into affirmative action back in high school um, when I was a little bit more involved in politics. And one thing that was always brought up was the idea behind affirmative action is you create a quota. So X number of people of color need to uh, be admitted to this university. Then X, X percentage of people of color need to be in you know middle to upper management and in this company. Let's say X company because I don't want to call anyone out um, and get sued. So the idea behind that is these people from the south side of Chicago will then get into Harvard, then they'll get this, you know, $500,000, $600,000 year job, then they'll bring that money back to that area and then improve it over a couple of generations. The issue that we've seen is that rather than taking the money back to that area, they then tend to move to the affluent areas and make those areas even more wealthy. Um, so you're basically losing the only pro to the discrimination of that is that is affirmative action. I've always been of the opinion that we need to look at how schools are funded in the first place, because right now, at least in Iowa, it's based almost entirely off of property taxes. So if you live in an area where all the buildings are run down, you know, the, the, you don't you don't raise much money in property taxes because it's not worth much. Um, and then the opposite is true if you're in a wealthy area. So the wealthy areas have better funding for schools and the poor areas don't. I think the way that you that you solve for this problem is by investing in more state money in those areas that actually need it as opposed to, okay, this wealthy area, you know, ha gets all this money from property taxes, then the additional federal grants because they their students do better on standard testing. And then you're, you're creating a cycle where some areas get more and more money and then continue to succeed. And some areas get less and less money and continue to fail. And um, then I think the other issue is that people tend to want results now, as opposed to being willing to invest in the future kind of the, you know, you plant, uh, you plant the seed of a tree in which you will never, and in, in which, in which shade you will never sit. Um, that sort of, that sort of theory. Um, yeah, it's not a, you know, it's a very complicated question. And I don't think that we can necessarily blame the, you know, the, I, I don't think that we can really attack the idea of affirmative action with what we know now, if we were to go back to when affirmative action was first implemented and say, this is, this is flawed. But now, knowing what we do now, I think that we take a different approach. And um, leading in, kind of leading into our next, you know, some, of our, some of the articles that we have pulled up, affirmative action has gone beyond attempting to correct for uh, past injustices. Um, 
so I want to pull up. So, okay, let me see. Sorry, guys, this is a new. We Some of you may have noticed we, we're not just, we don't just have a black screen. We have all this fancy stuff now. We have, um, a, we're, a, we're using a new system. So, uh, wow. we'll forgive you this time, James. Okay, that's much appreciated. All right, so I pulled up, this is a New York Post article. Harvard's gatekeeper reveals SAT cutoff scores based on race. So what we see here is that um, African-Americans, Native Americans, and Hispanic high schoolers require an 1,100 on math and verbal. Asian-Americans, on the other hand, require 1,350, and white people require 1,310. So what you see here is, and this is where I'm getting at with the topic of the death of meritocracy, rather than investing in people to bring everyone up, we're instead lowering the bar and requiring the best and requiring people to become equal by being worse. What do you guys think? Well, I think a lot of it is just the perspective on education and all these different cultural issues today is so, it's changed so much lately. Um, for instance, I've heard a lot of stories lately of these schools, I guess, um, that are like, well, I don't understand because all of our black students are getting such lower test scores than the white students and so you know something must be wrong and our school must be racist and it's like that's the mindset today where they automatically jump to to what i think is like an irrational conclusion instead of taking a look at like okay why is this rationally happening like what look at these students individually what's going on with them are they skipping school more often are they um you know, do they not have the support of their families at home and that kind of thing? And so it just seems like the it's so easy today to kind of pawn off these problems on some other um, like it must be something else. It can't be the obvious answer of, you know, maybe our school system is off um, that I think that just that perspective is what's kind of getting us stuck in this cycle instead of stopping the cycles because people just keep on kind of pushing off the blame instead of trying to find the root of the problem. I guess I'll also add to that with the whole idea of like, okay, when you have, you lower the standards for certain people, I think that's kind of dangerous because then you're kind of setting lower expectations for them that, oh, like because of underlying factors that you can't control, like we don't expect you to score as high in order to get you into these top schools and organizations like you need to like you don't have to score as well as like an asian student or a white student like we know that you're going to be worse i think that's kind of sad to think that okay like you're already having low expectations for these kids when they come in and it makes it easier for them to get in and i just think that's kind of it's kind of sad in a way that they're really trying to do that yeah well and that's kind of what our whole system is set up to do these days kind of to um you know, nurture those people that that supposedly we have to have lower expectations for. Because I mean, if you think about it, for instance, the the unemployment pay, like 
you know, you don't need to work hard and get a job because, you know, it's okay. You have it rough. We understand COVID must have hit you really hard and no one else, just you. So we're going to get make sure you get really high unemployment pay. Or, you know, we understand that your family is having a rough time and you're in poverty. Despite the fact you keep having kids and can't afford them, we're going to make sure you have some extra welfare money. So don't worry about it. And that's kind of our whole system is just set up for this kind of like comfort food for all these different um, all these different victims. Um, and that's just creating the idea in their head that they don't have to achieve anything more because they can still, you know, they're still being rewarded. So surely they must be doing something right. And that's that's not necessarily the case. It's supposed to help them, you know, get back on their feet so that way they can achieve more. But that's, and it, our system's really not telling them that. So what we really need to do is, you know, we need to mo have more incentivizing systems where it's like, okay, yeah, we'll give you this extra money because we understand that you need it. But how about you do this for us first? And so I think it's just getting that work ethic back in our system and back in our society. That's what's like really, really missing right now. And it just drives me nuts because I'm from the Midwest and grew up on a farm. And so I'm always just like, I've never understood kind of a low work ethic. It's always just been like, oh, there's something to do. I guess I got to go do it. And I never got paid for it. I always found it amazing. All these kids that tell me about all the allowances they got when they were younger. I was like, man, I didn't get any allowance. I was like, go all the lawn. Okay. Like, <laughs> yeah. I mean, for yeah. a little bit, I got like a quarter for taking out the trash, but that was for like a month. And then my parents were like, nah, you're fine. <laughs> Yeah, I didn't know what an allowance was except for a very brief period when I was 14. Uh, but I mean, so how do you you're you, you're right. So how do you reinstill that work ethic, though, when you have so many incentivizing factors telling people that they don't need to put in the extra effort? Um, and not only that, they're not only telling people they don't need to put in the extra effort, but they're telling the people who do that you're still not good enough. So just because so if you're an Asian and you score a 1300 on an SAT compared to an African American who scores an 1150, you as an, as the Asian are not going to be considered for Harvard. No matter how hard you work to get that 1300, you are not going to be considered. So the system is basically telling people you don't, not only do you not need to work hard to achieve things, but if you're of a certain race, you no matter how hard you work, you're not you're still not going to succeed because we won't allow you to. And it's a very I think it's a very dangerous line that we're walking down because people react to incentives. And you know, it's just like the unemployment that you that you touched on. Like, you know, if the government's going to give people hundreds of dollars a week to not work, well now all of a sudden it requires a lot more money for them for it to be for it to be worth it for their time to go work. Um, I was telling you guys before the stream, Taco Bell here in here in where I live, one of the Taco Bells closed at three p.m. because they they don't have enough staff. That I I never never would have expected to see see that, especially when unemployment unofficially is close to double digits. So. Where, like, what? I, I don't understand how we can incentivize this 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 behavior, and then complain that 
we're falling behind other countries when it comes to uh, how well we're testing, when it comes to how our industries are doing, um, while, while all the thinking is being exported to countries like India and, and, uh, and Japan, when we're sitting here and basically kneecapping ourselves. Well, I think it's a point that you brought up earlier, James. It's the whole idea that in order to change a mindset, in order to change a whole education system, it's going to take years and decades. And I know that, yeah, just like trying to put more money into STEM programs, like that's only going to do so much. It's really just trying to change like the hearts and minds of people coming up, trying to get better role models for kids as they're coming up. Like, hey, this is like almost celebrating American ingenuity again. I know that like there's a lot of like really good like inventors out there, a lot of good entrepreneurs. I know that Elon Musk is like huge on Reddit and stuff like that, like on Twitter. And like, I know that Jeff Bezos, like, I know a lot of people have a lot of opinions about him, like, he's going up into space. And like, I think that's kind of cool, but also like, he's super big billionaire. So I know there's a lot of opinions about that type of stuff, but just kind of like celebrate like entrepreneurship mindset of like people who see a need and they go after it. I think that's a better role model than a lot of other role models that people have today that they kind of idolize. I think you're right. Um, you know, for me, I don't know. Do you, have either of you heard of Gary Vaynerchuk? So he, uh, he was an, he's a son, son of an immigrant and, you know, he moved here and his father built up a wine, had a wine store. Um, then he, you know, he basically took his father's store online, built it up into a multi-million dollar business. Then, you know, when he was 29 left and his tournament and made his own company, it's worth hundreds of millions of dollars now. And he makes content all the time, basically, you know, encouraging people to get out there, you know, work hard, do what they do, whatever they need to, to build the future that they want, as opposed to waiting for it to fall into their lap. And that's really what got me up and moving was uh, being introduced to Gary Vaynerchuk. And I think, you know, you're right. If you instill that culture, um, if you have those role models, then I think that that's how you combat these negative incentives. Um, Ailey uh, brings up a good point in the chat. Like, what solution would we propose to these issues? I think, Cole, you mentioned, you, you mentioned, you know, the role models. And um, I think, you know, you, you touched on this too, just being proud of what it means to be an American. Um, I think we have lost our shared identity as Americans. And you see this with, you know, people taking a knee, for example, during the national anthem. They're not proud to be an American. They, and that I think is really the root of what's tearing the country apart is we can't even agree that being an American is a good thing anymore. We can't agree on what the American dream is. There are people who say the American dream is racist. And if you can't agree on that fundamental level, how can you come together and address any of the other issues that we've been talking about here? I don't know that you can. Yeah. And I think along the same lines of like the role model is I really think that one of the most efficient ways to make these changes is starting with the family unit. If kids grow up with parents who have that work ethic or who have had to work for something or who have realized that life isn't fair and that, yes, it's great to get these handouts, but I also still need to work for my own money because this handout isn't going to last forever. If you have those people in your family um, and those parents, then those kids are going to grow up with those same values and it's going to create a better 
um, society. And so I really think that starting with the family unit and unit and just getting the family values right of what are our morals? What are we? What do we value? What are we working for? <coughs> Excuse me. Making sure that we, you know, are teaching kids responsibility, work ethic, teaching them that there's, you know, there's going to be consequences if you choose poorly. Um, that if you, you know, if you're going to skip school and you're going to do bad in school, well, then you're going to have less opportunities ahead of you, or that you know, it is going to affect your future. I think those kind of mindsets really just need to start from the core, which is hard to instill. But that's why, like, one of the things I've always loved is um, my parents have always been involved with Love Inc. Have you guys ever heard of Love Inc.? No, I haven't. Well, it's uh, Love Inc. does a variety of things, um, but basically they help with lower income families. And one of the things that um, they do is they do um, financial planning and financial advising with some of these lower income families. And so what they do is they sit down with the parents and you know they say, okay, here's all your credit card debt. Where is this coming from? They talk through it and they help these families learn good financial habits and kind of get back on track. Now, all the while they're, you know, they have some charity thing like, okay, we'll help you. We have beds that have been donated. We'll help you get a mattress. We'll help you get some furniture. They have that kind of thing. But the requirement is you have to attend these classes in order to get those kind of handouts. And I think, you know, little steps like that, that are teaching those parents that didn't grow up with the parents that have that knowledge, or that didn't have the parents that taught them that work ethic, is to have those classes to kind of re-educate these families. Okay, here's what we need to value, and here's what we need to do get on back, back, get back on track. And it forces them to realize that I have to work for these handouts, or I have to work for, you know, these benefits, and also that these this welfare stuff and this extra money that I'm getting right now is not going to last forever. And I think that's a lot of loving families and stuff are realizing that right now with COVID is that, oh yeah, we were on a high for a little bit with all our stimulus checks, but all of a sudden now I'm back in debt. What do I do? And so it really gets people back on track. But I think it really starts with parents and the family union. You know, I don't think I could have said that better myself, <laughs> Jess. That was, I think, on point. Um so okay patrick says in the chat in order for families to be a positive influence we need to have a strong policy regi uh, regime that r promotes families the great society and the more recent child tax credit destroyed families um can you tell that patrick's my husband we might have talked about this a little bit <laughs> yeah is he driving right now is he texting and driving he is yeah. not texting and driving he has voice text yes um so yeah, I'm not. I'm I'm tangentially familiar with the Great Society. I don't remember much about it. The, so the recent child tax credit. Um, I'm not sure how he's referencing how it destroyed families, but basically, the child tax credit has existed for a long time. Um, basically, it's a you know you get at the end of the year you file your taxes. It's a refundable credit, which means you can get more than you can get more back than just the money that you paid in um, in taxes, and you get so much per child as long as you're in a certain income bracket and then it fades it phase phases out um starting this month i believe um the biden administration has now switched to paying out that child tax credit in advance basically so instead of getting a three thousand uh, dollar check at the refund check at the end of the year 
families will be getting like a $300 check every month, for example. Um, I'm not sure. Okay. So the I, income is like taxable income then that the government can, that they'd have to like recognize on their W-2s? No, is this that, is not taxable income. Gotcha. Um, the child tax credit is not. There are some things that are taxable at the state level, depending on, you, you, you're talking to a CPA, dude. I can go on about this forever. Um, oh. Oh. <laughs> uh, but no, no, that would not be taxable income. T Patrick says, it destroys families by incentivizing more children for single mothers. Um, and just to clarify, he was at a rest stop in the middle of Nebraska while he was taxing. I'm sorry to hear that. I don't necessarily agree. I understand the argument, because I've heard it before um that the child tax credit doesn't necessarily incentivize single mothers it does incentivize in some ways having more children but at the same time it also does make sense to cut people a tax break if they have more children particularly because it is only in the lower tax brackets um now if you're talking about you know, there there are a ton of topics you could talk about with people having too many kids, not enough kids. Um, but I don't think the child tax credit is the, to blame for that. Um, I think it's more of a product than a cause. Yeah, because then you'd be getting into like, I guess like fertility rates and like replacement mm -hmm. rates of like our death rate versus birth rate, how we're kind of declining. And like, I don't know if the child tax credit is trying to fix that or try to incentivize people to have more children. But I doubt it because I don't think that anyone would be like, oh, wow, I get an extra 200 bucks a month for a kid. Like, time to drop like tens of thousands of dollars on house. <laughs> yeah, that. I was yeah. Gonna say. No, it's, you know, there's a lot of other ways that you could collect a paycheck by having a kid that doesn't include a child tax credit, um, particularly given <laughs> oh, the restrictions on it. Um, it, it's true. I'm sorry. James knows all the ways to to sneak out. He'll have a kid just for the money. No, no, no. He'll oh. make a net gro net gross. So I don't know. I watch a lot of like the TV judges and that sort of thing. I I used to watch a lot more. I watch some now. Who's your favorite TV judge? Uh, that would have to be Judge Jeanine Perot. I'm a Judge Judy fan myself. Judge Judy is, is a very close second. But um, what I've seen a lot of is, for example, um, people exploiting child support and alimony um, in divorces to cash in. Um, so that's a much so that's a much more effective way to cash in on having a kid in the child tax credit for anyone out there. In case you're wondering, just just divorce divorce your husband and then you know cash in on that. Um, and then gain custody and then get child support and child tax credit. Yeah, yeah, yep. <laughs> oh my gosh. Side note, and this annoys the heck out of me. So, <laughs> the, the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, one of the things that I dislike the most about it, because it's overall, it's a, it's a pretty decent, uh, pretty decent. I have something decent else that I dislike about it too. I wonder if you're going to say the same thing. Okay. So, prior to the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, alimony payments were deductible from your income if you were the one paying and were counted had to was taxable income if you're the one receiving however as a result of the tax cuts and jobs act that's not true anymore it is not taxable income for the person receiving it and the person who pays it still has to pay taxes on it oh. so they get hit twice 
and the other person and the person receiving the alimony just gets free money, free tax free money. Um, and I'm, I personally disagree with alimony to begin with. So, you know, that just kind of, you know, that, that kind of lit a fire under me, um, when I found that out. So then are you going to have Elena sign a prenup then? <laughs> well, I mean, since we're going to talk about the uh, inner workings of my upcoming wedding, uh, no, I'm not going <laughs> to oh have her sign a, <laughs> sign a prenup. No, yeah, so I guess. Yeah, the, the part of the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act that I didn't realize is it capped the amount of property taxes you could like deduct off mm -hmm. your taxes. And so, like in a blue state like Illinois that has super high property taxes, like it actually raised a lot of people's like in like taxes just because they can deduct more than ten thousand, so they to eat that cost. Or something that I didn't realize, but it also benefited all the red states that didn't have that. So, like. I saw a couple, I'm assuming James, you saw this graph. It was like from, I think a year or so ago, it kind of showed like by state, like which states had like the highest and like most like tax increases. And it was like all the blue states saw their taxes increase because of it. And all the red states had their taxes decrease. And it was like split along party lines. It's like, wow, that's uh, it's kind of sucks to see that because I know there's definitely some people in Illinois, California, New York that are paying a little bit more on taxes now. But getting back to the... <laughs> The death of mediocrity. The death of mediocrity. mediocrity. Yes. Oh, you, uh, that'd be nice. Of Maserati. <laughs> You're a key at keeping me on track, Cole. So, yes, yeah, so back to the death of mediocrity now that I've got the little banner back up there oh. again. <laughs> Man. Um, so I wanna oh, is it? Yeah, it is. So I want to jump over. So we were talking about. The way that you solve for these problems is addressing the culture behind it. Um, so I want to touch on some, you know, it's been in the news a lot lately. It's pretty much what's, I would say, the number one thing that's, you know, dividing this country at the moment. And that is critical race theory. Um, critical race theory, it's, it's very broad, but basically posits that all, you know, how does race and racism um, affect politics, political policy. And uh, it goes be it go does go beyond race, but we've seen how this theory and its applied principles have been affecting inst uh, institutions from the uh, from <laughs> thank you, Patch. I'm gonna read that in a second, Patrick, but I just saw what you what you said. We've seen how it's infected universities, how it's infected now the, the government, the military. And so I want to kind of walk through that and then talk about some of the consequences of it. So the first thing that I'm going to bring up here, and while I bring it up, I'm going to say, Patrick has said in the chat, critical race applied praxis or applied principles. Um, yes, it is an acronym basically saying it's not critical race theory. They're not teaching the theory. They're talking about schools specifically. They are applying the theory in how they teach other things. Um, and it just so happens to conveniently spell out crap. So I'm a huge fan of, uh, of that acronym. <laughs> so this is from last year. I don't know if you guys have seen this before. But the uh, Smithsonian Museum of Black History put out this document last year talking about the aspects and assumptions of whiteness and white culture. So basically, the you know critical race theorists draw this line between white culture and 
other cultures. Um, Patrick just blowing up the chat. And He's bored. yes, so they're so <laughs> they're trying to find. <laughs> there's corn. There's one yeah, city. Iowa like, corn is better. Yeah, Iowa corn is much better. Mm. Um, and basically, the theory is that anything white you know, is bad. It's part of colonization. It's it strips people of color of their cultural identity, um, and it's something that needs to be at in, at best addressed, at worst completely removed or eradicated. So, which is and this document here i have a ton of problems with first off the way the way they list basically every aspect of american culture as whiteness i think is racist against people of color so some of the things on here um self-reliance is whiteness independence is is whiteness the family structure nuclear family is whiteness um, the emphasis on the scientific method, objective, rational, linear thinking is whiteness. Uh, hard work is the key to success. So basically they're saying that these things are attributable to white people, white culture, and not to people of color. And I think that not only is it dangerous in that they're trying, in that it basically attacks the foundation of American society, but it also posits the idea that people of color are they did not develop work ethic independently and i seeing this as an official government document you know this was so i think nice. we have lost james uh, okay. <laughs> did you lose me yeah you froze there for a second okay could you still hear me nope Okay, where did you leave? Where did you lose? Uh, you said you were about to say uh, government agency, and then you said the Smithsonian is. Oh uh, yeah, it's just, it's an official government. <laughs> yeah, there you go. <laughs> uh, so yeah, it's concerning. This is the point that I was making. We're being shut um, down. Yeah, really. I mean, we are running the risk of being shut down uh, by talking about this. It, Twitch in particular gets very touchy. YouTube's a little little less. Uh, less picky about this so just looking at this um give me your thoughts well i just want to point out how aggressive this wording is first of all because like i was looking at the religion and it says no tolerance for deviation from single god concept and i'm like um i'm pretty sure that we have lots of different religions in the united states and we have places for all of them to worship and and then it's like uh protestant work ethic if you didn't meet your goals you didn't work hard enough <laughs> like it's just such aggressive language it just makes me laugh because it's and like the wife is homemaker and subordinate to the husband the word choice here is just you can tell it's purposely uh provoking like it wants you to have these reactions of like oh well, you know, it seems like a simple fact, but for some reason that sparks my emotion. Well, it's because they're using words that are meant to spark your emotion. Mm -hmm. And uh, it just just the wording of this is just concerning, considering that this is coming from our society. And I'm guessing a white person probably typed this up for the record. Um, and 
And it's like you said, I think the biggest thing is that there are some actual, like, respectable, I mean, there are a lot of respectable ideas on here. And the idea that they're saying these come from white culture almost seems racist and harmful against all the other races because Mm -hmm. it's saying, oh, yeah, we are the innovators of everything. We are the innovators of work ethic and of the family unit where the guy is in charge and the girl is subordinate. Like, yes, clearly only white people thought of that. Um, And so it's, I don't know, it's interesting to me. And they're taking a lot of these ideas and spinning them to make them sound bad. But, oh my gosh, in the aesthetic, steak and potatoes bland is best. Okay, that one I can that one I can agree with. Uh, I'm sorry, England, but uh, you have officially been called out by the Smithsonian. And uh, yeah, yeah, for having like all the spice of the entire world, their food isn't very flavorful at all. Eng- England conquered the world for spices. Tried them all. Decided they liked none of them. <laughs> So, okay. Uh, I guess my question, James, is why was this even, like, created? Like, so, what was the purpose of putting this out there? Was it to, like, look out for this behavior? Or just, like, was it trying to look for, like, troublesome or, like, problemsome behavior in their, like, view? So this was the, this was them attempting to identify what white, quote-unquote, white culture is. Because um, when in these, you know... CRT books. They go, what you know, they go after what is the what is the aspect of whiteness? What does it mean to be white? What is so bad about it? And they're basically put they basically put this out to say, in in this is my opinion, um it's partially my opinion, to attack the the foundation of what it means to be an America to be an American, because Americans are very individualistic. They're very cognizant of time. Um, they are very, they tend to be very hard workers. And there are some things on here that I think are you know, valid criticisms, like wealth equals worth. Your job is who you are. Respect authority. Like, yes, there, there are some things on here that deserve criticism, but they're not uniquely white in any way, shape or form. Um, you know, so wealth equals worth. So you're saying that Europe was the only continent on earth for the last 10 millennia that believed that your wealth in any way uh, influenced your worth. I don't, I don't believe that for a second because I studied Japanese history. I've studied Chinese history and I know that it's not true. Um, It it just doesn't, this entire article, it's to me seems like it's meant to tear away at the foundations of American culture and just divide us further. And in doing so it's, also incredibly racist um and when this came out it was it was kind of a big deal and then it got swept under the rug but and that's kind of why i wanted to bring it back up again tonight is that this is an official document from the smithsonian this isn't some crackpot on the internet this is this is doctrine and this is what is influencing the incentives that our government and companies and universities, they're all, they're all pushing on people. And yes, you, you guys were absolutely right. We need the the way to get back to the realm of meritocracy is to repair the family unit and to encourage hard work. But this is what that ideology is up against. 
Well, and I think when something like this comes out, what just baffles me is that some people like see it, they take it for what it is, and then you know have these new ideas that they develop because of it. But what they don't think about is what if it was reversed? What if this was all about black culture and this came out? You know there would be riots. You know that there would be so many people that were offended, that were posting about it. But I, this is the first time I've seen this. So clearly there weren't white riots about it or there weren't people posting on Facebook about how racist this is. Um, and so I, I just don't see why people don't try to look on the flip side of like, okay, I see where they're coming from with this. Now let's think about it with other cultures and what would we put in there and then see what this document is saying to people or what it's telling people to think. And then that's when you realize that this is a racist document or that this is, you know, this is making assumptions or, you know, putting out facts that are really just based on how people want that culture to be viewed. And so, yeah, I just can't imagine if they would have put out, you know, aspects and assumptions of blackness and black culture. Like, I, the reaction to that document would have been huge. So then, James, what would the, I guess if they're trying to take the whiteness out of culture, I guess what would the effects of that be like? I guess what's like, if they're saying these things are bad or there's bad aspects to it, like, is there any like offering of like, this is what we should do instead? Or is it more of like, these things are bad, we don't know exactly how to correct them? Or like, does this fall on the individual then like, oh, hey, like you're rugged individualism, like that's, you should be more about folks in the collective, like family structure, like it's not as important anymore. Um, like nuclear family, like we're more progressive now, like there's different family structures and just like a father, like a mother and then like two or three kids. Like what's the end goal here? Like, why do they bring this up? The end goal, I mean, the official stated end goal is to create an equal society. Um, but in reality, the goal seems to be just to tear everything down, to burn the system to the ground. Um, and there are, I have my own opinions and theories as to why this is. Um, you know, Patrick is saying in the chat, for example, that the these that these CRT people they they need they need to sow division in order to get paid. They need to kind of tear tear away at the fabric of America in order to employ themselves or to exploit it along the way. Um, a lot of the you know the establishment leftist type politicians are accused of doing the same doing the same thing, but so they can stay in office because it rallies their base um, by promoting this sort of thing, by sowing divisions. Hey, the Republicans are bad. White people are bad. Uh, you know, then they can get more votes. Um, and then there's, you see like the leader of BLM, for example, um, being a trained Marxist, it's basically tearing away, it's destroying American culture burning it to the ground for the purpose of then replacing it with a Marxist society. And so different people support this for different things. Either they're first off, they, they, so one, they want to make money Two, they want to replace our current system with another system. Three, they want to stay in office Four, they're literally white supremacists. 
there th- this this sheet reads like a, like a Ku Klux Klan manifesto, and yet it's being put out there by people who are sent who are supposedly supporting equality for people of color. Um, so yeah, those are the different you know motivations and end goals that I see. Um, not stated, obviously, but as a result of where this has been going over the last few years. If I play a little bit of devil's advocate with you here, James. Absolutely. Um, from their point of view, I don't think that they really you know, dislike America. I think that it's a lot of, for so long, they feel that America hasn't been for like people who've been either discriminated against, you to second-class citizens. And from that, there's a need and a want to say, hey, like, we need to fix this and they're trying to fix it. And I think there's, from their view, it's like a pushback of like people who are saying like, no, like you can't do that. Like America's fine as it is, is like evidence of, okay, there's white supremacy. There is like this patriarchy in place that like people are pushing back. And it's not because of these reasons that I think you're bringing up and Jess is bringing up. It's these reasons that like, it's just like the, I guess the buzzwords that they kind of use like racism, Mm -hmm. And like patriarchy and all that other fun stuff. Well, I think I think you're 100 percent right. There are definitely people who believe that. The issue is that the the people in charge of the movement don't. At least if they do, they don't act like it. They don't act like it. Um, so yes, there are there are people who are discriminated against in this country. There are people who genuinely believe that there is still deep seated racism in this country. And regardless of what the progress that we've made over the last couple centuries to fix it, to end slavery, to end Jim, to end Jim Crow, to build a diverse and unified society, that it's just not enough. And so they want to do something about it. And so they see this critical race theory. They, you know, that they believe in the cause. The issue is that the line they're fed isn't what isn't true. Um, Again, to go back to one of the women in charge of uh, of Black Lives Matter, she you know she owns five houses, and yet she they're constantly going after rich people. They're oh, constantly Bernie Sanders run for his money. I see. Yeah, yeah, with his with his three houses, um, it's basically people in power co opting genuine a genuine movement um, and corrupting it so that they can benefit from it in some way, shape, or form. I don't believe for a second that every single person who believes in, who who is a member of or believes in Black Lives Matter is a communist. That's just fact, factually true, they're not. But many of the leaders and many of the people taking advantage of the movement are. They're using it to tear down American culture and be able to replace it once it's completely destroyed. And that and that's the issue that people are so ingrained in in their ideology that when they are shown evidence of corruption of their leaders, they're not willing to look at it. Well, and also I think there's just a big confusion because language is huge, and I think these days the definite definition of like racism is so different if you ask one person to the next. And so, you know, there's so many of these people that are preaching racism, and then there's the other side that's like, 
no, there's never ever been racism. I can almost guarantee you that their definitions are completely different of what it is. And so that's also how these leaders are um, manipulating these followers and you know, causing the corruption is because they're using this language and in their mind, they know what it means politically or they know what it means to the society, but they're telling their followers that it means something completely different. So then of course the followers are all on board for this maybe perfectly innocent thing. And they're like, well, yes, I'm gonna riot because I do believe that, you know, we should have equal rights in work. Meanwhile, the leaders are saying that, you know, that, yeah, you should, you should protest this and Meanwhile, what I'm actually doing is pushing a political motive. And so what's gonna end up happening is these followers are gonna look bad because they're gonna be pushing this political motive, but that's not being communicated. And so really this communication and this language is just huge and it's all just being mixed up. Sorry, my mom's calling me. <laughs> <laughs> you're good, you're good. <laughs> hey, what do you think, Cole? I have yeah, I think there's Yeah, there's definitely a, been, I think a shift of, almost confusion of like especially in the culture sphere of like critical race theory and affirmative action just trying to get like the definitions down because i think they're just you hit right like nail on the head on that one like there's definitely been like if you ask person to person like their definitions vary and i think that caused a lot of confusion like obviously there's a lot of i think manipulation with like the wording of how people say things and how how things are written where they they can go back and amend it say to make sure they're always right in some aspect. And so I think that's part of the issue is that there's not really a set definition just because if there was a set definition, then you could have like valid arguments against it and for it. And then you can have like a debate, but if it's always a shifting definition, then you can always have one party that tends to be in the right and one party that tends to be in the wrong if they're fighting from like the wrong position at that point. Yeah, and if you just sit down together, you realize that you're working towards the same exact objective. It's just that you were communicating in two different ways, and that's where the tension was coming from. And so I think that's like that's a big part of what's happening is people aren't talking anymore. They're not sitting down and realizing we both want the same thing. We want you to have equal rights. We want the best people in our companies. We want efficient workers. You know, we want good, solid family units that are going to teach these good values. But it's just being communicated in different ways. And then all of a sudden it's like, oh, well, no, you're just racist. So I'm not gonna listen to you. And, oh, you're just, you know, talking out of your butt and you just want the extra pay. So I'm not gonna listen to you. And it's like, no, 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 we're all on the same page. Just sit down and talk about it. <laughs> well, yeah, and that- The ends of the means too, probably gets to a lot of people that they that their way of doing things is a lot different from what our thing. I just think we're all three of us kind of like, we'd rather get a hand up than a hand out. I think that one's been thrown around a lot. Um, <laughs> So I know people are like, no, they need like, if you're down and down in your lock, like, no, you got to hand out to get back on your feet. I think there's different like means to the ends. I think that everyone wants everyone to like be employed, to like not be in poverty, to be healthy, like to have equal rights. But getting there is the issue is like, what's the means to the end? And right now, I don't think that this means is really the best way of going about it. But I mean, I'm not, I don't know exactly what it is. If I did know, I'd be a politician. <laughs> and you guys you guys hit the nail on the head is that the americans have more in common than i than they think um the issue is that you know with the introduction of identity politics it we, we can't even agree on definitions anymore how can you sit down and have a conversation with someone about for example institutional racism or systemic racism if 
we both have different definitions as, on, as to what that is. Or how can you convince someone to sit down with you if as you walk over, someone else intervenes and says, no, don't talk to that person, they're a racist. You can't even get to the point of having those conversations. And it's a lot. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's so we lot. pretty much just solved uh, all the world's problems tonight, right? Ab absolutely. Oh, thanks a lot. Yeah, just a little bit of work, you know. <laughs> Let's just no. reboot our systems, just restart the computer, we're fine. <laughs> Well, I think the I think the important thing is you you ask the questions, you you put a, you shine a light on it, and then you you can get people together to sit down and to think, okay, th this isn't working, or this is dangerous. What's what's the route that we go? Um, before we sign off tonight, I did want to touch on one other thing. Patrick has been screaming at me in the chat to talk <laughs> about it, and that is managed decline. Um, are either of you familiar with the idea of managed decline? So it's basically the uh, theory that um, the United States has, you know, obviously in the last century, it's been the, it's been the world's superpower militarily, econo uh, economically, from pretty much every, culturally, every single standpoint. Um, and then since the, since the 90s, particularly with the opening of trade with China, that the United States has been on a path of managed decline, basically, we give away, we slowly give away our jobs. Um, we export all our thinking. We become a nation of consumers. And eventually we give up our military power. We give up our place on the world stage and just sink into being a second tier country. Um, oh, yeah, basically. Uh, and this, this has been brought up a lot uh, recently looking at the differences between Obama's foreign policy, particularly when it pertains to China and Trump's foreign policy, where um, Obama is okay to see our jobs go over to China. He was getting, he was going to sign the uh, Trans-Pacific Partnership, which would have basically been a, a free trade deal with China, which would have completely destroyed American, what little American manufacturing was left. Um, and basically exploiting the system for their own gain as they manage the slow decline of America culturally, economically, and militarily. Compare that to the way that Trump handled things during his term. Very aggressive and combative with China. He was very competitive. How do you get, how do you get jobs back here? How do you bring American, how do you in, improve the economy? get away from just a straight consumer economy? How do you produce things again? Um, how, do you, how, how do you stop China's rise on the world stage? How do you preserve America's prestige? How do you protect our allies as opposed to leaving them to hang out on the vine? Um, Taiwan, Hong Kong, Ukraine. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, and that, that's a good point. Um, you know, yeah, I don't know where you wanted me to go with that, Patrick, but that is managed decline. <laughs> um, and I do see that this is part of, part of that. So, um, ex again, exploiting the system as the country declines. This would be the cultural aspect. Um, as you embrace CRT, to the, which is in, which to destroy the country's culture, you then extort the system to benefit yourself in some way, shape, or form. 
Yeah, I would. I don't know if I particularly 100% agree with you there on the managed decline idea. I think that just like any, I guess, business or there's always the cycle with like you have the expanding, you have the con- like the contracting area of like the country, and like I know we came about t- a decade away from like the Great Recession, and then we just had COVID where there was Narfil shut down the economy, and so there's a lot of I think contractionary things right now going on in the U.S. I know that the economy was supposed to boom. I think it still is to an extent. But then the stimulus payments and the bailout, I don't want to say bailout, something like that, I mean, it was this time around. But the trillions of dollars we could spend, I think, kind of depressed the recovery for a little bit. And I think that one of the big things that hopefully people realize about America is that, like, we got, like, 60% of our population vaccinated from COVID. Like, we were able to get a lot of those vaccines produced. We got them manufactured. And, like, now there's, like, parts of the country that are still being ravaged by COVID. And we're relatively, like, we can go to ball game like, we have like full capacity, everything like less than I'd say about a year or so, like after we got vaccines like fully produced, like I still think that America has got many more centuries. And like, I know that we'll probably wake up at one of these points. There's still plenty of good entrepreneurs out there. Like most of the big American, like big companies in the world, they're American based, but that doesn't really mean they're American companies. Cause yeah, at the end of the day, profit, profit. <laughs> it doesn't matter if it's coming from yen or dollar or anywhere else in the world it's so i think it'll be interesting to see what happens here in the next like decade or so yeah uh, so see visitor, james yes milo is he wants dinner um <laughs> i will feed you in like five minutes buddy so it managed decline isn't so much that you know it's not it's not the natural expansion contraction it's it's also not literally blatantly selling us out it's has more to do with those in power looking out for themselves first. Um, and I've there's a lot of aspects of managed decline. I'm really only familiar with when it comes to China because in case anyone hasn't noticed, I have very strong opinions as to which China is the real China. Um, <laughs> so, and that is they want to improve their lot in life. They want to, like I said, exploit the system. And they do that by selling America down the river. But they have to do it in a way that isn't so blatantly obvious that Americans break out the guillotines and go full Robespierre. Um, so hence the man. guillotine or tar and feather? Because I always thought that we were a little more British-based. Because no, because on the last, the white culture, it didn't say French-based, it said British-based culture. James, you didn't even read it. <laughs> okay, no, 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 that wasn't talking about how we how we deal with our unruly politicians. <laughs> um, I mean, we we think we ever guillotine politicians. We just turn nope. other like tax collectors and stuff. Yes, I think have we guillotined anybody in the United States? I doubt it. This is it's very important. Crazy this is more of a crazy French thing. Patrick is calling Jess right now because he was just calling me. Oh man! I think does Patrick want to say something? Do you have something Hello? to say? What? Do you have something to say? Yeah, are you on the podcast? Yes. Okay. Uh, managed decline. James is getting it wrong in the sense of like how he's applying it to this. Okay. Managed decline is a bundle of public policies that effectively will move the United States backwards um, so that we're leading from behind is usually the, the tagline that Obama attached to it. But it was more of an idea of promoting multilateralism over unilateralism to reduce 
America's soft and hard power in the international sphere because Obama and Biden and other Democrats believe that America, rather than being a force for good, is a force for bad, and that we should be regressing in the on the world stage. So, and if we were to regress, then the idea is then these other countries will not feel pressured by us, and then we'll begin to moderate and reduce international tensions. That's the idea, as it is presented by the Democrats. It's a terrible idea, because a managed decline includes policy prescriptions such as James such as the TPP, which has been terrible, but also the Iran deal, where we just shipped pallets of cash and said, hey, we're pulling out of this region. You guys will be fine here, right? No, no, it doesn't work. So that was my point. Okay. That we're trying, it's, it's intentional reduction of American foreign power and, this, and the idea that following CRT, America is bad because we're racist. So, anyway. Okay. No, well, 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 you're not on the podcast today, so I'm cutting you off. You've been alone too long. Thank you, Patrick. <laughs> and that's actually, that's actually a really good point. Yeah, I just think that Iran wants to build a bunch of nuclear power plants. I think that Vladimir Putin just he's just misunderstood, man. He's just trying to reunite all of Russia and then one flag. So I, uh, I think that Pat's totally off base on that argument. <laughs> oh great, now I'm trying to call me. <laughs> but no, yeah, no, he he yeah, I'm glad that he clarified that because yes, uh yeah. Anyways, I, that's a whole nother podcast, that is, right? That is, yeah. we, we can literally <laughs> spend an hour <laughs> talking about that. Yeah. So, but yeah, so we talked about a lot of, you know, a lot of the problems that we've, that, that we can identify tonight. I think it's, like I said earlier, the first step to solving a problem is identifying it. And I really want to just highlight some of the aspects of our changing culture and how it can really cause damage to America as a whole. Because as I we touched on just a little bit in the beginning of the podcast, if you don't have meritocracy, then you don't have the best people for the job doing the job. And the very last thing, I don't want to talk about this much, but I, I do want to show this because um, this is a big thing last week or two weeks ago. Um, Navy brass focuses more on wokeness than war fighting. Basically, the story behind this is that the Navy spends, and this is after interviewing uh, multiple active and former duty uh, military personnel, the Navy spends more time on diversity training and, than on combat training, um, which resulted in a few years ago, a couple years ago, the destruction of one of our ships just burned in the harbor. Um, then a few years ago as well, we had one of our ships run out of fuel in, um, the Gulf, uh, uh, what's the, I can't remember the name of the Gulf, but the one where I ran right next to Iran. Um, and then our sailors were captured. Um, this is, this is the effect of not having a meritocracy. When you only recruit people based on superficial factors, um, when you have quotas, you have to have a certain number of people in based on superficial factors. When you focus instead of on doing the job well, on making sure that people understand why being white is bad, then you don't have an effective workforce anymore. You don't have an effective military. You don't have a functional government. You have a bunch of people arguing 
who have no idea what they're doing. So if we allow meritocracy to die in the United States, we are essentially signing the United States death warrant. Yeah, well, and I just want to point out that like the death of this work ethic and everything is also contributing to why so many places are so desperate for workers. And because of that, there are so many places that are forced to hire unqualified people because they just need someone to fill the hours. And so personally, where, where I work, I know there's a lot of people that don't show up for their shifts multiple days in a row, and they still have their job because they don't have any other option because we're already short on shifts. There's already tons of people working overtime. And so that also contributes to the less efficiency in, in companies. And uh, again, it, it's incentivizing this low work ethic because it's like, oh, well, if I don't feel like going to work, I cannot go to work and still have a job when I come back. And so all of this is just kind of piling on top of each other to incentivize the wrong kind of thing. And speaking of difficult, like, I know with the unemployment benefits too, like, if you're working at like a minimum wage job or something just above the minimum wage and you can make a lot more than what you were, like, why would you go back to work and just encouraging that behavior? I know that, yeah, it's difficult trying to find labor, but if you are looking for a job right now, like, you can get something that you're really not qualified for because it's a good job market out there. And like, especially like once the unemployment benefits like run out, like, and what is it, September? I believe unless they extend them more i think they extended it again but i mean multiple states have cut it well, have it's the delta variant. oh yeah the delta variant it's gonna extend a little bit longer but no it's i think it'll be interesting to see like if there will be like a drawback to that where then once people start looking for work if a lot of these employees that maybe not don't have the work like the best work ethic end up like getting like go once like more people are looking for jobs they can find more qualified people that are more responsible Oh, it's, it's a straight up hormus or uh, hummus, James. <laughs> I'm pretty sure it's pronounced hormus, uh, not hummus, but uh, thanks for that one. Like the food? Um, yeah, those are nice. But yeah, so I think you, know, you guys touched on it. We got to, you know, start with family. You got to, you know, teach your kids, the val- teach kids the value of hard work and spend time with them. Don't rely on the public school system to raise your kids because this, you know, this stuff, the, from the Smithsonian, that's what's being taught to your kids in a lot of places. You know, you you have to be involved. You have to be involved in your community. You can't just sit in your room and play video games all day. And this is coming from someone who we used to sit in his room and play video games all day. <laughs> you have to you have to be involved, and that's that's the only way that we can ensure you know meritocracy still exists. That we can ensure that the American dream still exists is if we all pitch in. We all get involved in our communities and we, you know, it, we built the Americans built the American dream in the first place. And then we kind of sat back in our laurels, laurels for a few decades and watched it kind of fall apart. And now it's our job as Americans to put it back together. And don't um, be afraid to have those hard discussions. Like talk to your friends and neighbors, say, Hey, this is going on in our school and I'm not comfortable with it. What are your thoughts? Cause chances are, they're probably thinking the same thing. They just haven't said anything. So even just like James said from the very start, just having these conversations is a great place to start. Even if it's with just having them with people you're comfortable with at first and then explain, expanding from there. Yeah. All the school board meetings that I don't know if you have seen the videos of it, like I the have. parents going like just ripping apart the school board members mm-hmm. about this stuff. And they're like, <laughs> No, it's not happening. It's like parents will defend their kids. Like it's one thing to like kind of have like public policy, but once you start going after like people's kids, like that, that's a whole nother issue. Yeah, and I, you know, once one, I think 
once one person stands up, another person gets the courage. And you just have to you just have to keep that ball rolling. You have to have the courage. A lot of, I know a lot of people are afraid, especially with cancel culture being so pervasive these days. And you just you can't be afraid. You know, there's there's more of us than there are of them. <laughs> so <laughs> we're just much quieter. Um, but anyway, I want to end on a little bit of a high note. You know, not all is lost. We you know we can we can doomers here. No, God no. We can rebuild the American dream. All it requires is a little hard work. You're so. not alone. We're all doomed together. Just kidding. <laughs> Thanks, Jess. Just kidding. <laughs> we can. <Yeah. laughs> all right. Thank you guys for watching. If you enjoyed tonight's episode, uh, leave a like on YouTube, follow us on Twitch, and share with your friends. It was a very important conversation, so definitely share it with anyone who might be interested in uh, this channel or in this topic in general. Um, we'll be back again. Friday night, uh, we don't have a topic nailed down yet. I've got a couple of different ideas that we could talk about. Um, Jess, uh, you got uh, another Jess, one, too. What's that? The, uh, whatever Pat was, whatever we're talking about, the decline of the nation or whatever, managed decline. Managed. Oh, managed decline. Yeah, that is, a, that is a new idea as well. <laughs> so there's tons of ideas that we can talk about. Um, Jess and Pat will not be here. However, um, we're going to see if hopefully Mike will be back on depending on his work schedule. So <laughs> thank you guys for watching and uh, have a good night. We'll see you in the next one.